Welcome to the 218th of the COVID Calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters in the Graduate School of Science and Technology Policy at the Korea Advanced Institute of Science and Technology. Today is a discussion of behavioral health and addiction in the pandemic with my guest, Amanda Lattimore. Just a reminder, you can catch COVID Calls live every weekday at 5 p.m. Eastern time on YouTube. Just go to the COVID Calls YouTube channel to watch. You can also watch COVID Calls on Facebook Live and on Periscope. You can hear COVID Calls anytime recorded as podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can also keep up with COVID Calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID Calls. Please do help spread the word and send suggestions for future guests and future topics, and please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. As of today, February 11th, 2021, there are 2,363,449 deaths from COVID-19 globally, according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. There are 474,554 deaths reported in the United States. As a way to bring some humanity to the numbers, I've been reading a life story or a story of advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic in some way. I'd like to continue that now. The headline is, as the COVID death toll grows, so do the obituary pages. This was published in the Columbia Journalism Review by Ari L. Goldman and appeared on December 10th, 2020. As of December 1st, the coronavirus pandemic had killed 1.47 million people worldwide and devastated the global economy. The fallout has generally wreaked havoc throughout the news industry worldwide. Employees have fallen sick, advertisers and subscribers have retrenched, and cutbacks and newsroom layoffs have become commonplace. That same grim force, however, has also powered a remote corner of the industry, obituaries. The growth in the number of obituaries has brought new readers, new advertisers, a new sense of purpose to newsrooms, and in some cases, even a slight increase in circulation. As the death toll has mounted, newspapers from the United States to Italy to South Africa to Brazil have rolled out new sections and added page after page of obituaries. Writers and editors have been transferred from less active beats, like sports and culture, to writing obits. News websites have added verticals and special websites with names like those we've lost, the names we must remember, and frontline workers have been added. At different moments this spring and summer of 2020, print outlets, including the New York Times, Brazil's O Globo, and Israel's Yedio Aherino, listed the names of the dead on their front pages. The whole enterprise, editors say, is an effort to get away from the political, economic, and data-focused stories about the pandemic and move to the heart of the tragedy, the human loss. As one editor at O Globo, a large circulation paper based in Rio de Janeiro put it, there is no person that likes to be a number. Over the course of 10 weeks, a team of recent Columbia Journalism School graduates reviewed hundreds of obituaries published by news organizations, large and small. And among their findings are some interesting things. For example, newspapers in Africa, where the stigma surrounding infectious diseases is especially strong, were the least likely to list the cause of death as the coronavirus. Only 12% of reviewed obituaries did so. 
By contrast, almost all of the reviewed obituaries in South America, 96%, mentioned COVID-19 as the cause of death, as did the overwhelming majority reviewed in North America, 83%. China, 77%, and Europe, 65%, also stressed COVID-19 as the cause of death. Most obituaries were for men. While some of this can be attributed to men dying at somewhat higher rates, obituaries of men outpaced those numbers. In China, 89% of reviewed obituaries were for men, followed by South America, 80% and Europe, 75%. In Africa and North America, roughly 70% of the obituaries were for men. Nearly all the obituaries disclosed the ages of the deceased. It ranged from 13 to 106. Here's a breakdown of what the researchers found in the United States and China. In China, where the virus first emerged in December of 2019, government-controlled news organizations initially underplayed COVID-19's devastation, while private semi-independent outlets struggled to cover the full extent of deaths in Wuhan. The media's approach changed with the death of Li Wenlang, 34, a physician at Wuhan Central Hospital who was punished for his public warnings about the virus. News of Li's death sparked an outpouring of com commemorations on social media platforms, defying government censors. Both Kaishin and The Paper published long obituaries that included interviews with Li before his death, as well as comments from Li's colleagues and family members. Obituaries reviewed since then have largely towed the limits of censorship, reminding readers of the death count that the death count was heavily discouraged by officials. More than half of the 62 obituaries recorded in five Chinese media organizations between January 24th, the day after the initial lockdown in Wuhan, and February 21st, were about government officials and prominent public figures, mostly in Wuhan. As the virus continued spreading, obituaries expanded to include doctors, nurses, and occasionally everyday people who died from the illness. Their stories especially interested newsroom editors and readers, said reporters from Kaishin and The Paper, both semi-independent outlets. As Wuhan's situation stabilized by mid-February 2020, COVID-19 coverage, including obituaries, became increasingly restricted as authorities dialed up the campaign to laud public servants. In early April, Beijing officially designated 14 healthcare workers as national martyrs. The Communist Party's publicity department had ordered organizations to focus obit coverage on these martyrs, said one journalist with the paper who did not want to be named. Turning to the United States, many small American papers relied on Legacy.com, an obit website that largely depends on tributes written by friends and family members to document the devastation. Meanwhile, Large American newspapers like the New York Times and the Seattle Times added staff and resources to beef up their obit coverage once the scale of the pandemic became clear. The New York Times set up a special vertical called Those We've Lost. The Seattle paper called its section Lives Remembered. Both publications modeled their COVID-19 efforts after previous projects meant to capture lives lost in disasters. For the New York Times, the coronavirus coverage was modeled after portraits of grief which chronicled the dead after the terror attacks of 9-11. The Seattle Times based its coverage on a feature that chronicled the lives of the 43 people killed in a devastating mudslide in 2015. Both papers have attempted to cover everyday people who died because of the pandemic, 
rather than the celebrities or prominent civil servants who usually populate the obit pages. Fives Remembered really was born out of conversations about how we can humanize the pandemic, Gina Cole, the Seattle Times assistant metro editor, says, as we try to help people understand all of the data and the numbers and the epidemiological terms that come along with covering something like this, we didn't want the human toll to get lost. The paper set out to cover deaths that were representative of the lives lost in Seattle and the greater metro area. At first, they relied on readers to alert them of deaths and then chose ones to further report on. Over time, to better reflect the diversity of those lives lost, the staff scoured a list of deaths from the coroner's office, GoFundMe pages, raising money for hospital or funeral costs, and other local papers. Obituaries have been a staple of newspapers since their earliest days. Online journalism has not changed that. Obituaries are essential. As terrible as the news they convey is, people want and need to know. Okay, I'd like to turn to my conversation today, which I've really been looking forward to. Let me introduce my guest today, Amanda Lattimore. Amanda Lattimore is a social epidemiologist who focuses on overdose and addiction policies, practices, and programs. Dr. Lattimore is the director of the Center for Addiction Research and Effective Solutions, CARES, at American Institutes for Research and adjunct faculty at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. Amanda Lattimore, thank you so much for joining me on COVID Calls. Thank you so much for having me. So I'd like to start the way I usually do, just to find out where you're calling in from and what the pandemic's looking like there today. Yeah, I'm uh, in Baltimore City, Maryland, and uh, the pandemic is, um, as is in the United States, um, generally uh, getting better and better every day. We're at a 3%, 3 to 4% case positivity or test positivity uh, rate. So uh, the the U.S. is around 6, 7%. So we're doing better than the U.S. Um, Baltimore City itself is is shut down um, somewhat. So we've got uh, 25% capacity rules here for restaurants and, and businesses in general. Um, so we're being cautious. Schools are in, in the state. Some are open, some are closed. I've got a five and a seven-year-old. And um, obviously that's it's an important uh, issue for me and, and our family, um, as well as it is for a lot of other people. What about in Baltimore City itself? Are the schools open there? So Baltimore City Public Schools is um, starting a, a process of opening. Um, there are schools in the state that are open. There are schools within the city that are open, but the public school system is, is just beginning to um, develop plans uh, because of some, you know, one of the concerns is that there are marginalized communities and students who really need those schools to be open. Um, and, you know, they rely on the school system for, for a lot of things. And so um, we're concerned about the achievement gaps uh, that will be uh, the result of, of not having in-person classes. So I think it's um, it's the right thing to do, uh, but it's a, it's a challenging issue if there aren't enough resources to um, keep the classrooms, you know, keep kids separated, keep the classrooms clean, have the testing that you need um, to do this the right way. I think a lot of times education reporting um, you know, focuses, tries to focus either on the incredible brokenness of American big city districts or the bright spots in individual places. 
Um, I'm hoping that it's this constant coverage of these challenges that districts like Baltimore is dealing with somehow leads to to some broad, you know, broader understanding and, and reform. I haven't seen education in the newspaper this much in my entire life. Yeah. I, I think, you know, the, the pandemic has really shed light on a lot of uh, health, economic, educational disparities. And I think we can all take this time, not just to think about solutions for right now during the pandemic, but also think about how we can use uh, you know, these opportunities to um, provide solutions long term. So I want to ask you, first of all, about the center that you run, the Center for Addiction Research and Effective Solutions, which is at the American Institutes for Research. Tell us a little bit about the scope of the work you do there. Yeah, so uh, we do research and technical assistance. Um, and, you know, we're, we're looking at addiction, behavioral health, uh, from a social determinants of health perspective. So that means thinking about not just the clinical aspect of helping uh, individuals seek quality care, get the care that they need um, and want, uh, but also thinking about the economic issues, employment, housing, transportation, education, um, to uh, address prevention of uh, substance misuse and also um, help people who are in the grips of addiction, uh, as well as those in recovery, and um, you know how all of those social determinants interact with uh, the issues of addiction. I wonder, just take us back a little bit to the early days of the pandemic. When did it appear into your consciousness, and, and, it, and you must have almost felt intuitively that this was going to bear upon the work that you do in a, in a normal day to the extent there isn't yeah. a normal day in, in the United States. But take us back to that early moment in which you sort of the consciousness hit you that this you were really entering something new here. Well, yeah, well, obviously, if you're thinking about addiction from a social determinants of health perspective and this pandemic, um, it, you know, you start to understand the economic impacts of the pandemic um, and, and see what's headed um, down the road, uh, you start to worry. And I know that, you know, in the beginning, we, we saw reductions in things like overdoses. Um, and in the very beginning, when there was a, a lockdown, um, shelter in place orders, and we had reports, at least here locally, that there were decreases in EMS response to, um, you know, overdoses. And we wondered, you know, whether or not that was going to, you know, how um, the pandemic was going to affect um, overdoses, suicides, and, and deaths of despair. So um, as time went on, though, uh, we started to really see that that was just a lull um, that was, uh, you know, um, not maintained in any way. And so what we can we can look back at 2020 data now and see that there is a huge increase in um, uh, deaths uh, due to overdose, uh, not so much in terms of suicide deaths, but if you look at emergency department visits, you see 30% increase in overdoses in emergency department visits uh, uh, related to overdoses. Um, and, you know, huge increases for suicide as well. Um, also, unfortunately, uh, suspected child neglect. Um, so really, this just hammers home that when we're talking about pandemic response, COVID response, we have to also talk about behavioral health. 
It's not just an economic thing, infectious disease. Yes, we need to get all of that under control, but people are suffering emotionally and uh, that has to be part of the conversation. I'm really glad you said that. It, and it ties back to that story I read at the top about the role of obituaries. It's one of the tensions throughout this entire pandemic of trying to get a handle on numbers, um, which is not something any of us would dispute the necessity of, certainly for policymaking and budgeting and just reacting to disaster. But numbers are difficult yeah. and numbers move differently across different public health domains and medical domains. I wonder if you could just, you mentioned some statistics there just a minute ago. Can we go a little further with that? Can you talk about some of the measures that really matter to you, that you really pay the most close attention to? And then maybe we can talk about what numbers don't show in the yeah. behavioral health sector. Well, I always keep track of, of uh, provisional estimates. Those are, you know, overdose death data are um, challenging for, for some ju jurisdictions to get in um, to the right centers, you know, to process those data uh, quickly. But, you know, the CDC, um, the National Statistics Survey, uh, um, uh, those data actually are a good, um, the provisional estimates provided by those data are a, a good way to track how things are going um, with overdoses, uh, which is sort of the most acute example of what's happening with addiction. Um, but that's something I, I, I definitely um, have been paying attention to. And there's also, at least now for this that this pandemic, um, you know, there are census uh, surveys that are tracking um, experiences among the American uh, population with depression and anxiety. Um, and so that's that's also uh, a good indicator. What are some of the reporting mechanisms for for gathering that? that kind of data. You mentioned the, the census. I mean, does this fall on hospitals to do this kind of reporting for overdose? And we already have an overtaxed health system. Mm -hmm. I worry, again, just going a little further with this problem of even getting a sort of numerical sense of, of the reality of it. Yeah, I mean, it, to the extent that you can rely on census data, you can rely on on these data as well. I think it's a, it's a good, it's as good as it gets. But I mean, mm -hmm. it, it calls into question um, research in general and whether or not we are tapping into the most vulnerable communities that may not be answering the telephone or, you know, clicking on a survey online um, and, you know, thinking about uh, going into communities and listening and paying attention um, using trusted messengers and, you know, conveners um, to get firsthand um, the experiences of people. So maybe we can talk about stress a little bit. I talked with um, Zaneda Thayer yesterday, who's a, an anthropologist uh, at Dartmouth, and we talked about stress and maternal health. And she was, I mean, it was really illuminating conversation because she talked about, you know, an already sort of stressful set of interactions that people have with the health system. And then you layer the pandemic on top, loneliness, um, distance from healthcare providers, distance from family, financial precarity, and everything gets thrown in there and called stress. And so we tried to take some time to pull that apart a little bit. I'd like to do that same with you. How do you think about stress in relation to behavioral health, maybe pre-pandemic? And then let's talk about what the pandemic changes. I think the same things that are stressing people out now were stressing people out before. You know, if you think, if you um, 
look at some of the research on pandemic-related stress, the thing that is at the top of folks' minds is financial security. The most impactful thing is concern about finances. The most common thing, based on this research, um, is uh, concern about how long this is going to last. When are they going to be able to see their loved ones again? Um, so that is unique to the pandemic. But in terms of what's most impactful, being able to pay your bills um, and and you know have a quality of life, take care of your children, um, have housing. A third of the U.S. is concerned about paying their their mortgage. Um, you know, twenty percent. I, I think the estimate was around twenty percent of of Americans are um, concerned about uh, you know where they're going to ha have food insecurity um, and. I believe the estimate was around 8% for those who weren't sure they were going to be able to pay their 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 mortgage the next month, that they may actually be homeless um, uh, due to an inability to pay their, their mortgage or their rent uh, within the next two months. And that's, that is all consuming. And that regardless of, of whether that's, you know, in a pandemic, and we have people who had housing instability and food insecurity before. Um, and uh, so I, I think that that while the the pandemic is highlighting those issues um, and they're more pervasive now, they're things we should have been thinking about before. And and this systemic inequities that that we have in our healthcare system, um, and uh, you know helping those who are most vulnerable um, eat and have a place to live is something that that we should be talking about. So you think about. Those those stresses like the financial precarity, mm -hmm. for example, um, as a kind of a, a trigger for behavioral health crises. I mean, walk me through that a, a little bit. I mean, we have populations of people who are susceptible to behavioral stress on a on a given day. We're all susceptible to it, I suppose. And then there are certain triggers that push people into addiction or into self-harm and, and suicide. I'd like to know a little bit more about how you, you think about those, those triggers and that causality. Right, well, I think that there are, um, I think there are genetic components. Well, there are genetic components to it. There are situational components. And um, I suspect that there, that there are, um, that those are exacerbated in this current environment where we have stressors and a, a minimal number of coping mechanisms. And so um, one of the most common coping mechanisms based on research um, uh, of folks during the pandemic uh, is right now distraction. Um, and distraction is known as not one of the most healthy uh, forms of coping, uh, but it's very common in situations like disasters, traumatic events like 9-11. Um, it's common uh, when there's not a lot of control. And so the things that we're used to doing to cope, um, you know, social connection, exercise, you know, gyms are closed down, group uh, sports are canceled. And so those things aren't at our disposal anymore. And so the less healthy coping mechanisms um, are, are probably uh, a, a little um, more common than, than normal. And so that has a negative impact for those who may be more likely to end up with a substance use disorder um, issue. 
And is that, you know, what does the data show in terms of people who develop new substance abuse issues in that context, what you're just describing, versus people who already maybe been in recovery once or more and then find themselves back in the cycle of addiction? People who are currently um, in, in recovery uh, who are going through this this pandemic are, are dealing with, uh, you know, loss of their coping mechanisms just like everyone else's. And so, you know, the consequences for someone who is in recovery and trying to maintain recovery, whatever that means for them is, um, you know, it's got a different set of consequences for those that are not in you know, do not have a diagnosed substance use disorder. Um, you know, I this is new territory. I, I I don't. I'm not sure I've seen any research. You know, that's a call to researchers out there. Um, in, in terms of uh, those who have initiated a substance use disorder during a, a, a public health crisis. I mean, that to me is extraordinary. I I haven't really followed that, but I wonder. You know, even in terms of how. Um, organizations we're familiar with, like AA, um, shifted everything to online. Um, you know, any sense of that can, that you have seen of how people who already have maybe existing communities that they rely on have made that transition? Yeah, there there have been transitions. I think the the behavioral health community has um, really tried to rise to the occasion, and there are um, alternatives uh, for people who, um, you know, want that abstinence only for the AAA um, or other types of, uh, uh, of groups like that. There also is a mobilization from um, the uh, professional, like the uh, treatment providers who are um, engaging in telehealth, you know, trying to take advantage of new uh, regulations that have been relaxed. Re they're not new regulations, but they're regulations that have been newly relaxed by the federal government. So telehealth is more um, accessible. You can now, uh, for example, medications for opioid use disorder were only previously allowed to be provided in person. And so that has been relaxed. So folks who have opioid use disorder and need medications or would like medications um, can now get that, get uh, take home prescriptions. That, that wasn't allowed before. You can also mm -hmm. initiate treatment um, for buprenorphine uh, that was not allowed before. You had to have an in-person hmm. meeting before you could get treatment um, uh, through telehealth. So these re relaxed regulations have increased access for people with substance use disorder. And there are some states like New Hampshire that are uh, making these regulation, relaxed regulations permanent. Um, so it's not just for the, the the public health emergency, they're they're realizing that it's important to increase access long term, and I hope other states follow. I'm really fascinated by that because it it indicates there's a certain set of of judgments about a, a, a process that a person must put themselves through before they're worthy of of treatment. I don't want to lay too much on that because um, I'm not really sure what I'm talking about here. But I, I wonder maybe you could say a little bit more about that shift to telehealth. It, when regulations are set aside, I always find that to be an interesting frame because that means, well, what were the basis of the regulations in the first place? Were they based in sound science or were they, as often uh, comes up with drug policy, for example, they're based in a whole package of social norms that may need to be re-examined. Can you talk about that a little yeah. bit? Well, it sounds like you do know a little bit about, 
<laughs> so I, I just oh, told yeah. you everything I know. So you've got to take it from here. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I could tell you that the explanation is stigma. And, um, you know, we, I think the behavioral health community has been calling for a long time for, um, you know, a asking the question, why is it that medications for someone with a substance use disorder are so much more tightly restricted? You know, if you had a uh, heart disease and you needed to go get your medication, you had to drive two hours to go get your medication every day, how many people would take that? How many people would make that sacrifice? And, um, you know, being able to obtain medication, make it more accessible, not forcing people to risk their health because there's a pandemic to show up in person, but then more, more importantly, just decreasing the barriers to accessing those medications is something that we, that we really should be uh, applauding and, and maintaining after this pandemic. So I think what it has shown us is, um, look how easy that was. <laughs> because there were so for so many years, professionals have been saying, okay, this isn't right. We need to change it. We need to change it. And there are all these roadblocks out. Oh, it's too hard. Policy. Well, look at this. An epidemic came. We figured it out just like that. And how do we keep it going? I, that is so similar to discussions that I've had with disability rights advocates who've talked about that at Turner being told it's impossible, it's impossibly expensive to provide accommodation. And then the whole country within 30 days, um, workplaces that had never been doing much with accommodation had made that turn. The real fear then is among the advocates that I've talked to that they will go turn it back. They will go back to some sort of normal. Do, do you worry about that? And I guess it, the, my next question connected with that is this should be a moment of policy advocacy to demonstrate. Exactly. The, so what's what's in the mix there as far as yeah. you're concerned? I, I think a lot of people are worried that that will um, backslide after whenever the pandemic is over. Um, so a lot of people are, are doing the best that they can right now to do the research, collect the data to say, hey, look, all hell didn't break loose. Like things didn't implode. People are healthy. You know, there isn't this mass diversion of medication because people are taking it home. Um, and so, yes, data, you know, as an epidemiologist, that's something that uh, I focus on and, um, you know, doing that kind of, of research so that we can use it to advocate for the future is very important right now. Wanted to ask you one more thing connected with this. We talked about that, that turn to telehealth and the possibility of relaxing regulation. Talk about um, uh, suicide prevention in that in that context, because I, I generally think of suicide prevention hotlines, and we always hear, you know, at the holiday holidays, those hotlines are overwhelmed. But that's generally how I think about suicide prevention intake. But there must be many other points of contact for people who are considering suicide. And I wonder how those have been disrupted at this time. Well, um, to the extent that uh, folks have been able to maintain um, their social connections. Um, I think that, so th there's a saying in, in substance use disorder world that the, the opposite of addiction is not sobriety. The opposite of addiction is connection. And for suicide, um, you know, connection is really important as well. And so there is a, a huge disruption of um, that connection. Uh, there is some, some research that I recently read uh, 
that was looking at the pandemic and, and um, emotional you know, experiences of youth. Um, and they showed in that research that 80% of those youth, well, they, they were young people, 18 to, to 35 year olds, um, that 80% of them had depression and felt lonely. Um, and so that is, you know, during this time, I, I think we really ought to be thinking about how to disrupt, you know, how to regain those connections. For some people, having a, you know, Zoom call is, is not enough. And so I know that the Biden administration um, has set aside some in, uh, in the uh, new American Rescue Plan, has set aside some funding for behavioral health, thankfully, um, for SAMHSA and, uh, uh, you know, the Department of Health and Human Services um, to address behavioral health needs. I know that you know there's a set aside or should be a set aside for for schools to specifically address the needs of youth and um, behavioral health. So that so that's promising. want to remind everyone you're listening to COVID Calls, and I'm talking with Amanda Lattimore today uh, about behavioral health and the pandemic. And you can get your questions in to YouTube Live in the YouTube Live chat. Be sure to also um, access Twitter. If you want to get a question up on Twitter, just be sure to tag at US of Disaster. I want to um, make a little bit of a pivot here. We were talking about drug policy a little bit a minute ago. And uh, Amanda, you published, um, you've been very um, very productive in this time. I don't know how you've maintained it, but I, you know, just looking through your publications and your work and reports at this time, it's really astounding what you're what you're accomplishing. I just want to focus on one um, piece, which is a really great piece, and everybody should check it out. It's um, in American Scientist magazine, appeared September 2020 under the headline uh, "Ending the War on Drugs." I'm just going to quote a sentence here. You said, "Drug laws, if taken at face value, are not written to corral people of color into jail cells. However, drug laws are enforced in ways that lead to their mass incarceration and contribute very little to improving, and in many ways may increase harm to public safety and health." You know, this year that we've just come off of, in which the realities of America, which are structural inequality, racism, and police violence have been shown back to many Americans who have been in um, denial of those things. Mm -hmm. And there's, everything's interconnected. I think that's where what's been astounding to me is those connections which are often obscured, sometimes out of neglect, sometimes out of lack of news coverage, sometimes because people don't want to know. Those connections are now brought into relief. And so I was really impressed with you writing about drug policy at that time. And I wonder if you could reflect a little bit just about your, your arguments in that piece, but also how you see that in the context of the, of the pandemic. Why is this the right time yeah. to revisit drug policy? This was such a, um, it, it, was, it was like the trifecta of public health issues to have a racial justice movement at the same time that we're dealing with 
an opioid crisis, an overdose crisis, at the same time that we were dealing with um, COVID and really seeing, you know, twice the deaths among, uh, you know, brown and black communities. And to know that the common thread of the most pressing, the most, you know, the, the systemic issues, the thread that came through all of those, those, um, you know, the, the issues that we're dealing with was centered around racism and systemic inequities. And so the same things that, that we're dealing with, um, that people were talking about uh, during the uprisings and the protests uh, and how individuals who are black are, are twice as likely to um, be shot and killed by a police officer. And then we're talking about twice as likely to die from COVID. And then we're talking about overdoses and um, and how the criminal justice system is, uh, you know, the 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 quote justice is doled out inequitably, um, and folks who are brown and black are more likely to be stopped and frisked, less likely to have drugs on them or paraphernalia, more likely to be arrested once they're stopped, more likely to be harmed more likely to be booked once they're arrested, more likely to be put in jail and to serve longer sentences. And that's just not right. And for all of those things to come together at the same time, it was a moment that needed to be seized. So yes, I did write a lot. And we were talking about distraction as a, as a coping mechanism. Um, I'd like to think that uh, this was less a distraction and, and more, channeling my energies on on the moment and um, trying in my small way uh, to make a difference. Back up a little bit for us, the historical narrative on the war on drugs, if you would. I think this is one of the things that's been really profound to many people to, un to realize that there's this long policy backstory for a lot of the vulnerabilities that then were so rapidly exposed during the pandemic. The case of George Floyd, for example, is one. You look at his life and his death, um, his struggles with structural inequality, the criminal justice system, on and on and on. Um, it's almost unthinkable to see all of that in one person's life mm -hmm. and death. But there it is. And so I don't think we can even understand his life and death without sort of this story of the war on drugs. Could you fill in a little bit of that backstory for us and how that meets us in 2020? Well, the, <laughs> in 30 seconds, can I explain the no, war? No, you, you have longer. <laughs> Take all the time you want. That's the great thing about COVID calls. We talk as long as much. <laughs> well, um, I can say that uh, the, the war on drugs started um, as a uh, political um, strategy. Uh, it was a political strategy uh, to kind of mobilize um, resources. A lot of money was poured into uh, health, uh, sorry, local police departments. Um, it was a, an opportunity to, uh, which explicitly in some cases, uh, if you're interested in this, you should uh, um, I can give you a couple of, of resources uh, to go to, but there is a there 
there's language, specific language from political leaders that that indicated that this was um, a way to mobilize white voters to vote, um, to instill fear, uh, to um, put money into police departments to carry out this fear mongering initiative to um, you know get those drug users and drug dealers. Um, and 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 that was all uh, sort of brought to bear, um, so people could go vote and say, okay, this president, you know, is taking care of us. There are all these boogeymen out there, and we need to arrest them. And um, and that just wasn't the case. There was a lot of confusion actually in the beginning when all this money was going in to deal with the drug problem. No one thought that we had. And then. Once all of the money was in the police departments and there was a, such a strong, you know, mobilization of police onto the streets and, um, you know, this idea was planted that that we had a huge drug issue um, and people were thrown in jail. I mean, the, the, the rates of increase in people going to um, going to jail for, for drug related issues just rose astronomically. And then, of course, we use circular reasoning to say after we've gone into these brown and black communities where there was a supposed issue and then uh, those folks get thrown in jail. Um, so they're over policed, thrown in jail when they shouldn't be thrown in jail. And then we take a look at the, the, the prison system and say, wow, look at all of the black people in jail. We really need to be police, policing them. That's where the crime is. So there's this circular reasoning um, that just exacerbates the problem. And once you are in the system, unfortunately, all sorts of policies were put in place so that, um, you know, people who are, who have a criminal history and it's specifically related to drugs, you are not, you are barred from all sorts of uh, access to um, public benefits. It's harder to get a job. It's harder to get food. It's um, you know you're you have been disconnected from your community. You can't vote, and so then you've put a whole you know group of people. You've disenfranchised them, and then you wonder why they're having such a hard time. So it is. The war on drugs really doesn't seem to be so much a war on drugs as it, as it as it seems to be a war on brown and black communities. I haven't heard anybody. You, you took longer than 30 seconds. You took two and a half minutes. And it was but I haven't heard anybody lay it out quite that clearly, those those connections. And I think that's I mean, just to pick up one little part of that, the um, overwhelming infection rates from COVID-19 in carceral settings cannot be disconnected from this war on drugs and the mass incarceration of minorities in the United States going back to the 1970s. I, I just think we have to reckon with that. So what is that, what's that reckoning from your perspective? It, is it in the public health domain and just sort of quietly and efficiently moving resources where they need to go in substance abuse treatment, in providing public health resources? Is it a policy spear, you know, that really needs to be taken on and the Biden administration needs to be articulate about this and the war on drugs and those connections? 
maybe it's all of these. I don't know. I mean, there's not unlimited Amanda Lattimore's. There's not unlimited resources out there. So where's the focus need to be? I think the focus needs to be on the social determinants of health. Um, I believe that one of the, the greatest uh, machines that is under the hood for health and economic disparities and inequities is through the war on drugs. So if we would just stop putting people in jail for, um, you know, a, a medical condition, first and foremost, people with addiction uh, exhibiting symptoms of an addiction should be offered treatment, not jail time. And if we can stop treating addiction like a criminal offense and the medical condition it is, that would be a huge first step in addressing inequities, uh, which are intergenerational. Once you know, individuals who are, are are put in jail are family members, their fathers and mothers, and sisters and brothers. And if we can have a a more medical focus on behavioral health, people who are in you know acute need of of services. And some of, actually, some of the people who are put in jail shouldn't be, you know, they don't have a serious addiction problem. They don't, um, not everyone needs services. People are being put in jail for marijuana. A lot of the folks in jail are are there because they didn't pay a fine. Not, not a violent offense. They are not in the grips of addiction. They are just under super, uh, uh, supervision and hyper surveillance. And so there are uh, there there needs to be a decrease in the the over surveillance of brown and black communities, and it, it's just atrocious to me that someone can be in jail for marijuana when it's legal. People can legally purchase it in parts of the U.S. So you could get arrested for having a little bit of marijuana on you, in another state you actually can th that would not be a problem at all. And then once you get released, you are barred from participating in that same economy that you were arrested for in the first place. I mean, that's just, <laughs> that doesn't make any sense to me. Yeah, the insanity of the of the the drug laws across the United States and the enforcement of the drug laws um, is striking when you put it that way. And of course, it holds a mirror up to the pandemic as well. In the absence of federal policy um, in the United States, what we found, we've seen all the gaps now that we had in terms of federal capacity to respond to a disaster. We just didn't assume that it could all happen at once. And they have. And then so it has shown again, this crazy quilt of disaster response across the United States, where mm -hmm. if you've lived in California or New Jersey, it hasn't been perfect, but it's been an awful lot better than living in Texas or Florida, um, where you had public health um, that was grabbed, the reins of it were grabbed by governors who turned it into, into politics. And, and I guess I wanted to shift that over and ask you a, a little bit about, in, in that regard, circling back to what we were just talking about, um, the Trump administration went to war on the concept of structural racism. Yeah. And... I want to get your take on that because I, I feel I have mixed feelings about that. And on, on the one hand, of course, it makes me angry that that they would even try to interrupt university curricula 
on structural inequality. So you can't even use that concept. If you want federal funds for research, you can't even employ that concept, which would be at the very heart of what you've just been discussing in terms of connecting the war on drugs, racial inequality, and social determinants of health. So, of course, it's infuriating. But on the other hand, I think, well, maybe that means that that approach is winning. That they feel they have to attack it, that they feel they have to somehow discredit it, means that it has made some headway uh, in the previous generation of, of scholarship. Again, I don't want to force a binary choice on you, but I am curious to how you reacted when you saw the administration really take strong issue with the kinds of, of analysis that you had in that American scientist piece. Yeah, this is a this is an interesting um, topic. Uh, in some ways, I think the entire four years was an example of how um, there is a sense of threat uh, to almost half of the U.S. A sense of threat um, that, in a lot of ways, is racially driven. Is uh, how the last four years happened. It's how January 6th happened. And so when you see the Trump administration um, making a uh, such a, a what seems like a crazy demand, you know, that you can't address uh, racial bias, racial inequities um, using federal funds, it it's just more of the same. Um, of what we have seen over, we had seen over the last four years. For communities of color to hear that uh, coming from the nation's leader, to have people co-sign that was extremely traumatizing. So yes, it was more of the same, but you know, in the midst of a racial justice movement, anyone, who says we don't need that kind of racial bias training just isn't listening. And so it, it, it was, um, it has been a, a, a traumatizing time between all of the, the violence, the police violence, to see our family members uh, dying at higher rates, to see, uh, you know, a, a criminal justice system that continues to to tear our communities apart. It um, it just underlines the work that we still have to do, uh, and the half of the country that is still not uh, accepting the information that's being provided by communities of color. It's a lot to lay on the public health community, I have to say. And um, I keep an eye and uh, in, in, in contact as best I can with researchers in that world, like emergency management as well. One of the things I often hear is that people say, let's, let's keep the politics out of it. We'll be more successful if we can keep the politics out of it, which of course raises the question, well, what are you defining as politics here? Um, and you've made no equivocation that race and racial inequality is one of the aspects of a social determinants of health perspective. 
Is that consensus now? <laughs> I, I wish it was consensus. Well, there's certainly enough evidence. Okay. There is certainly enough evidence for uh, a, a social determinants of health approach to um, to recognize the importance of uh, politics and race on health. Um, historically, if you look at the origins of race, it's very economically and politically driven. How we decided in our country that white people would be a, this set of people and black people would be this, even though there is zero genetic distinction, we are more alike across racial groups than we are within, okay? So there's no genetic origins for race, but we decided politically and for economic reasons to create these racial categories and then created a hierarchy, which led to slavery. Okay, this country needed labor, and this is one way that they made that happen. So our country was founded on this racial categorization completely intertwined with our economy, and on the backs of slaves, we came to, you know, the nation came to prominence. And to think that we have somehow overcome all of that, Black people have been slaves longer than they have been free in the United States. And so we have a long way to go. We have made some progress, but we have a long way to go to disentangle those things. And I did not hear that in the last four years. And it's still such a, a big problem in, in public health. And anyone who, do, who thinks that, um, that it doesn't belong, that this conversation does not belong in the work, that we do to reckon with our history, to find ways to pour resources uh, into those who need it the most, is really not interested in making a difference from my perspective. Talking with Amanda Lattimore today on COVID calls about behavioral health and racial inequality and many other aspects of understanding this, this pandemic, Throughout our conversation, the timeline has been moving further and, and further back, which maybe is an occupational hazard of talking to a historian. Uh, and, but I really appreciate what you just said. And I, I want to, you know, we have a few minutes left. I wonder if we can just do um, some of the opposite and let's think forward a little bit. Models that you see from other countries that are working, um, policy initiatives, either at the state local or federal level coming out of the Biden administration that give you some hope that the work is is um, bending those numbers that we started a conversation with, mm -hmm. um, bending some of those numbers in the right direction. Give us a little bit of a, some of the breadcrumbs you're following into a, into a future that's a little better in this regard, Amanda. Yeah, I'm, I'm really encouraged by the um, commitment of the new administration for uh, really attacking, you know, um, COVID uh, vaccinations, the, the promise for 150 million doses, vaccinations in 100 days. I mean, when it was 100 million um, in 100 days, people were concerned that he was uh, promising too much, and then he bumped it up to 150. And I think that that really just demonstrates uh, that 
a commitment. We have to get the pandemic under control before we can do anything else. Um, but I actually don't think that there is a, these are not competing interests. Public health is, is not ignoring the economic needs of the country. Uh, folks like me who are, you know, who understand the social determinants of health recognize how important education and jobs is to health. And so in, you know, addressing and, and, and really targeting I'm trying to get the pandemic under control. We are, we are trying to reopen the country. We are focused on the economy and education, reopening the schools. Um, so, having uh, you know federal support, federal uh, energy behind this, um, some organization, the plan, resources. Uh, I think um, seeing more of that at the national level has been really encouraging. You said earlier that you thought one of the really important emerging research um, trajectories in this moment will have to do with um, drug addiction intervention, the way people initiate getting care, the way deregulation may impact that. What are some of the other things you have your your eye on as we as we move through the pandemic and to a time which those death rates come down? What are some of the other research areas you're excited about? Yeah, I, I think another important area of research is um, you know, thinking about mobilizing uh, communities, um, creating resilient communities, using this time to, for example, um, create community-based health worker networks. And this addresses the need we have right now to develop trust within communities, connect them to medical care, address, improve vaccine acceptance. But beyond that, we are creating jobs within communities we are developing you know, long-term strategies for, for trusted messengers of health information. We're addressing healthcare shortages. Um, so if we invest in community-based health workers um, and, and not just to deal with vac vaccines, deployment and acceptance and um, contact tracing, not just that, but, but having a long-term strategy to engage in communities, you're building the, those same connections to healthcare that are going to help for things like behavioral health, helping connect people to services, helping create networks of, of you know, people, um, relationships, trusted relationships within communities is good for all kinds of health outcomes. So I'm really, uh, really excited about um, that kind of research. I also, uh, I think that there are, we should take this opportunity to re-examine um, uh, regulation on uh, on services, behavioral health services, as as I mentioned before. You know, making permanent, more permanent, um, some of the telehealth benefits. Thinking about uh, removing X to X waiver is another initiative that is really important. Um, it, it is something that a lot of behavioral folks are are getting behind. Um, because there shouldn't be extra barriers to being able to prescribe medications. You have to get a waiver in order to uh, have a special training in order to prescribe medications for opioid use disorder. Um, and, and having uh, that kind of training needs to be pervasive, just like any kind of medication you know, for heart disease. Most people exit medical school with training on that. It should just be integrated as part of medical training. We're not saying don't get trained. We're saying there shouldn't be this extra certification 
which is providing, which is actually just creating a barrier, unnecessary barrier to care. So those are the sorts of things that 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 we're trying to use this time, this this moment um, where services, connections to care are needed more than ever, and saying how can we use this opportunity to address a problem that we have right now, and think about how it translates to long-term success. I want to just get one last last question in. You know, disaster researchers across many, many different domains, I, <clears throat> excuse me, include you among that, are kindred spirits in that uh, when moments like this happen, um, we have, this is when the, the data is collected. This is what we study. This is what we try to make sense of so that we reach some those so-called lessons learned, too mm -hmm. often unlearned um, lessons. But we're also human beings. Uh, and we have our own stresses and things to cope with. I wonder if you could share maybe just a little bit of what it's been like for you through this time. What's your regimen of, of coping with the daily stress of the pandemic while you're also studying all of these other broader societal implications of the pandemic? Right. I see your flowers behind you, for example. You have a very nice, you have a very botanical background. Maybe that's part of it. I should adopt that. Yeah, well, I did do a lot of running in the beginning. It's a little too cold out for me yeah, now, um, me but I, yeah. I really, I did a lot of running um, and a lot of writing, as as you mentioned, um, channeling those those feelings and that energy um, into the work that I do, and you know, taking a moment. We we experienced all of these things at the same time, and we're expected sort of to just show up the next day as if nothing was happening and do our jobs. And, and I took some time to say, oh, hold on. <laughs> I'm sorry. Did you guys hear what happened yesterday? You know, to just stop and realize we are human, that we bring our whole selves to work and that some of us are really in pain more than others because of our own experiences, our, you know, families and 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 whatever it is but i think one thing that this pandemic has really allowed us to do is realize that we have we do bring our whole selves to work now we have kids running in <laughs> and dogs and whatever and it's all on the screen for people to see and we're realizing we we bring our whole selves so it it's i think one silver lining out of this time is um that that we are recognizing that there shouldn't be such a, a a stark kind of distinction between our professional selves and our personal selves. Um, not saying you need to bring your you know baggage to work exactly, but but to to take a moment to recognize that that we are not machines, um, and that there may, may be an opportunity to connect with your with each other with your coworkers on things that really matter. Amanda Lattimore is the director of the Center for Addiction Research and Effective Solutions at the American Institutes for Research, and she's also an adjunct faculty member at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. I want to remind everybody that you've been listening to COVID Calls, and you can catch COVID Calls every weekday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time. Tomorrow, please join me. I'll be talking to Kate Starbird. It'll be Kate's return to COVID calls, and she's a brilliant scholar of disinformation and conspiracy and social media, and I have many, many questions for her. So please join me for that tomorrow, 5 o'clock Eastern time. Amanda Lattimore, um, thank you for this illuminating hour. I really appreciate 
the stretchiness of your research and the impact of it and um, keep after it. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Stay healthy, everybody. We'll see you tomorrow, five o'clock.